This is Mark Zickrey, the author of The Twilight Zone Companion, and you're listening to The Twilight Zone Podcast with Tom Elliott. Way back in 2011, I welcomed my first guest onto the Twilight Zone podcast. Now I can't believe it's been that long, but quite fittingly, as well as being my first guest, he was the first real Twilight Zone commentator, the first to look at the show in detail and dig into the production behind the show. Mark Zickrey is the author of the Twilight Zone Companion and... As a younger man, he started his Twilight Zone journey when many of the people in front and behind the camera on the show were still with us. So while there have been many great Twilight Zone books written since, Mark Zickrey's timing and vision was such that the Twilight Zone companion stands alone in many ways, as not only being the first to venture into the Twilight Zone, but also being the book that got these great Twilight Zone stories directly from the people involved. He had a level of access that everyone who came after can only dream of. Personally, I owe a debt of gratitude to Mark Zickrey because his name does loom so large in the world of the Twilight Zone that him agreeing to come onto the show when it was still so very young gave the podcast some level of legitimacy. I could then go to other people and say, look, Mark Zickrey came on the show, and they take notice and agree to come on. Now, I had interviewed many celebrities before that as a magazine writer, but that was my first Twilight Zone interview, and I had Mark Zickrey to thank for that. Now, I haven't mentioned it on the show yet, but recently this year, a new third edition of the Twilight Zone Companion was released. And the reason I haven't mentioned it is that I really wanted to get Mark Zickrey back onto the show to tell us exactly what was new about it. And we had made tentative steps to do that, but in the meantime, something else happened. Since I started the Twilight Zone podcast, I've connected with many people all over the world and... One of the people who I have connected with, who I do consider to be a genuine friend, is a gentleman called Brandon Shea Matala. Now, Brandon is a very prolific podcaster, and I enjoy his output immensely, and I'll go into more of what he does at the end of this episode, and I'll also put links to his shows in the show notes. Now, one of the things that makes Brandon good at what he does is he puts a lot of effort into it and he's always well prepared when he comes to an interview. And you can tell that the people he interviews really appreciate that depth of knowledge that he brings to it. You know, he hasn't just turned up with a bunch of half-hearted questions, he's done his homework. And they always seem to genuinely enjoy the interviews too, which is great. Now, one of the main things that Brandon podcasts about is Star Trek, and recently he attended the Star Trek Las Vegas convention, which I believe is probably the biggest Trek convention in the world. I might be wrong on that, but 
from the calibre of guests that they get there every year, I think that might be the case. And one of the guests there this year was Mark Zickery, because, among other things, he's written for Star Trek, The Next Generation, and Star Trek Deep Space Nine. So not only did Brandon interview Mark Zickery, but he very kindly offered to allow his interview to be used here on the Twilight Zone podcast. Now, much as I would have liked to speak to Mark myself about the new Twilight Zone companion, I actually think it's worked out better that Brandon has done this interview and gifted it to us, because as well as stuff about the Twilight Zone companion and what's new in it, which comes near to the end of the interview, Brandon has more knowledge than me about some of Mark's other work, so he can really engage with Mark Zickery on that level and talk about those things. So this is a more well-rounded interview than I could probably do, and it's about much more than just The Twilight Zone, and Mark's other work is also included in it. So I've talked enough for now, so I'm going to hand over to Brandon, but I will just warn anyone who listens to the show with their kids around or anything like that. Now, I'm no prude. Anyone who's listened to my other podcasts will know that, but I do keep The Twilight Zone podcast family-friendly, because The Twilight Zone is a family show. But there is one F-bomb near the end of the interview, which I've left in, because, you know, even a PG movie is allowed an F-bomb. And it's pretty funny the way it comes out, so you have been warned. So let's go to Star Trek Las Vegas 2018, and listen to when Brandon Shea Mutala met Mark Zickery. So we're at Star Trek Las Vegas 2018, yes. and I'm humbled to be sitting with Mark Zakri uh, here at the convention. Uh, Ryan Husk introduced us yesterday and said we could sit down and have a chat, and I'm just I'm thrilled okay. beyond all belief. So well, thanks, excellent. So let's start by talking yeah. about your new project because that's the exciting thing that's going on. Why don't you tell yes. everybody about with Space Command? You bet. Well, a couple years ago, I noticed that a lot of the science fiction on television was very dark and very dystopic, and in movies as well, so you had an After Earth and Oblivion and Elysium, and I loved Battlestar Galactica, but you know, no one ever had a birthday party on it, you know, it was yes, like yes. very dark, and, and I wanted a show that was like Star Trek had been when I was a kid, that it would inspire people and say we have to reach across boundaries and barriers and see the, the human heart in everyone, and, and not give in to fear or cynicism, and basically create a hopeful future, a, a hopeful vision of the future, and, uh, and not, without being, you know, rose-colored glasses or, or, or you know, creakier or old-fashioned, but I just wanted to do that and say that love and compassion uh, take courage and bravery, and, and they can actually create a world worth living in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I didn't, a lot of my friends run network shows, and they said, uh, let's uh, walk this in and, and sell it as a, as a pilot, get a pilot deal. But I didn't want to do that because I wanted, because I knew that the, they could cut me off at script, or they could cut me off at pilot, no one would ever see it, and they would own it. And so I, I run a roundtable in L.A. where I um, mentor people, and it's basically to create a compassionate Hollywood, and I've been running it for 25 years, and there's thousands of members. And I, so I've, I've been hear, hearing about crowdfunding from some of the members of my roundtable, and I thought, well, I've never raised money. Let's see if we can. Mm-hmm. And um, so our target was $75,000 to raise in two months, and we raised that in three days. Oh, wow. And we kept going, and we raised 221000 and that was enough for me to open my studio, and uh, I started. I, I sat down. and I wrote the first eight hours of the twelve-hour season of Space Command. Okay, yeah. And uh, and I reached out to a lot of my friends, like Doug Jones and Bob Picardo and Armin Shimmerman and, and Bill Mumy and so forth, and they were all eager to come aboard. And so, um, so 
And then I was able to sell investment shares and raise another half million. And now we've done other Kickstarter campaigns. And so I've been able to basically build a production machine. My audience is greenlit Space Command. So uh, in all, I've, they've given me about a million dollars. And so we've shot the two-hour pilot. We've shot 40 minutes of the second two-hour episode. We're going to shoot the rest of that in December. And we're just, we just keep going. And at the same time, uh, it was very interesting. I was very curious to see if the network executives, if you said, well, my audience funded the pilot, if that would make it sound like a fan film, it, would, it wouldn't seem real, or whether that would give it greater legitimacy. And it, it was the latter. Okay. They said, wow, that's really impressive. So now I'm pitching the show. Okay. So I just met with AMC two days ago. I'm, I'm going to be showing, premiering the first hour of the pilot. We premiered the first half hour of the pilot at San Diego Comic-Con. Now we're going to premiere the first hour at uh, the Drama Summit in London in November. And that's where the buyers go. That's where the network and the and platform executives like Netflix and Amazon and Hulu go. And I'm going to be pitching the 12-hour season. So okay. we'll see if we can sell it as a show. Okay. But, but, but my audience could finance the show probably as well. But I think it's just a matter of speed. If, if, I get, if I sell it to Netflix or whomever, first of all, having the pilot, it's like this is the vision of the show and if you're willing to come aboard for this, then we can have a conversation. Mm -hmm. So it isn't like put a funny robot in it or you know, or they give you the note that ruins it. No, that's not gonna happen. That's not, you know, in the cards. So it's been a fascinating journey. And and as a result of this journey I just sold a new book that I'm gonna be writing called Green Lighting Yourself. Okay. And that'll come out next year from Silman James, my publisher on the Twilight Zone Companion. So does that talk about like doing something yes. through yes. funding? Yes. Yeah. It, yes, it, it talks about everything that I've done because basically the model that's now emerging is where the audience finances the shows they want to see. Mm -hmm. And I mean, you know, because I was, when I was a kid, when I was 10 years old, Star Trek came out. Mm -hmm. And I remembered when it was going to be canceled after two seasons, and we all, you know, picketed at NBC, and we wrote letters, a million letters, and they renewed the show for a third season. Well, now, if that had happened, Gene Roddenberry just would have had a Kickstarter campaign, yeah, yeah, yeah. and we would have gotten season three and four and five, you know. But, uh, so I think this empowers creators enormously. Mm -hmm. But you just have to deliver the goods. You know, you have to really know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So having, you know, 20 or 30 years in the industry where you really know what you're doing and then adapting that as much more of an independent model um, allows you to do this. And shooting digitally and all of these things that make it so much um, more possible. Okay, excellent. Yeah. Now, so you've got a completed pilot yes. for this here. Yes, So what happens hypothetically, let's say you take it to a television program yes. station and they say, we want to buy this, yes. we want to do it, but we want to reshoot it. Well, it's what would happen in that situation? It depends on what the specifics of that conversation are. Okay. So, for instance, if they say we would like to have more elaborate sets, or we would like to have, you know, um, whatever they, whatever their constraints, whatever their concerns, that would be a conversation. Mm -hmm. If it was production things, but if it was like, well, we don't really like that Doug Jones guy, we don't really like that. Who's Robert Picardo? We don't know who Robert. Picardo. It's like, you know, here, here's an actor from the CW who can't act, but you, you have to put him in as the lead. Well, then the answer is no. Okay. And because money doesn't rule me. And because money doesn't rule me, the creative act is what I'm... I mean, look, I, when I was a kid at City on the Edge of Forever aired, and it was, it was astonishing to me because every TV show before that, the hero saved the girl. And in this one, he throws her under a truck, literally. Yeah, yeah. And so... And it, and it was amazing to me because it showed me that in life, there might come points in your life where it's really hard to do the right thing, but you have to do the right thing, even if it breaks your heart. That was a profound lesson about life. And Harlan Ellison became my mentor and my friend. And he said, you have a great opportunity in everything you write to change people's lives for the better, to, to change the world for the better. And you must not squander that opportunity. And you must not waste your audience's time. And you must respect your audience. And, um, and I hold that very, very, very profoundly 
true. Mm -hmm. And Ray Bradbury was also my mentor, and he said, looking back over a lifetime, you see that love was the answer to everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so again, so I'm, I'm not preaching, but I'm definitely trying to inspire. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it's, I think it's very important for all of us to do that. Mm -hmm. We have a responsibility that for some reason most writers don't, I'm, I'm always amazed at writers whose shows, and this is not to slam anybody, but where the shows are about the worst people winning, the, 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 the darkest uh, vision they could possibly conjure up, when in their own lives, hard work has made them successful. They, they, they're honorable, they go home with their families, they love their wives, they love their kids. It's sort of like the lesson in their life is not conveyed into their work. Mm -hmm. and, and so they're preaching an extremely cynical view. And I, I don't mean, again, there's some great shows that are very dark, like Breaking Bad and Battlestar Galactica, certainly. So I'm not, I'm not down on any of those people. But I think from myself, just speaking for me, my responsibility is to try to, you know, make the world better, if I can. Yeah. There's a lot of anti-hero shows out there right yes, now, you know. Yes. Like, I think one of the major shows that became that, uh, yes. that started that trend was Sopranos. Yes, of course. You know, and, but that also changed television and how television is yes. because of these 13-episode arcs, season arcs, yes. and stuff like that. Which is great. And the economics changed, too, because with home video, people could buy an entire season or entire series so arcing shows became profitable that's right because yes, of yes. that and um but again and i'm not down on sopranos because i think if people are telling their emotional truth or the world that they know that's fine and certainly david chase was writing about something he knew about mm -hmm. but um you know but i think but for myself i think I, I knew that there was room for a show that would be inspiring and that would be hopeful mm -hmm. and uh because and particularly in these dark times where we really have to re i mean I, I make it a point in my life just to be kind, just to give that extra bit of kindness. So even if someone's trying to park their car and there's a garbage can behind them blocking them, I'll run across the street and move that garbage can mm -hmm. just to have a little kindness in the world or hold the door open for someone. Or, you know, if someone's struggling with their packages, they'll say, oh, let me help you with that. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you know, I was thinking yesterday about people can get in a, into a habit of, of casual cruelty, uh, but you can also get into a habit of, of, of ongoing kindness, mm -hmm. daily kindness, and it just takes the mindfulness to do that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and so when the first writer I ever saw in person was Ray Bradbury when I was 10. He, was, he gave a talk at a library in, in Cheviot Hills where he lived and, uh, in L.A. And, uh, and I sat in the... I, I wasn't even in the front row. I was in the carpet sitting on the, on the rug in front of the first row looking up at this amazing writer, this amazing man. And he said, ideally, your life and your work and your art should all come from the same place. Mm -hmm. and, and again, I took that very much to heart. Mm -hmm. And so, so, that's, that, so everything is pretty consistent in my life, from what I do in my personal life to what I do in my work. Mm -hmm. And I'm very glad of that. I'm very glad of that. So, um, yeah. Let's go back to Space Command here for Please. a second. So <laughs> if, um, if Space Command doesn't get picked up yes. by a network, yes. are you going to continue to crowdfund to try and make yes. more episodes and finish yes. them? Yes, 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 yes. And in fact, I've just announced a new project called the Showrunners Network, where I'm going to be collaborating with six major showrunners to create six new shows where the, f the fans will, um, the audience will finance all six pilots simultaneously as a slate and then we'll roll them out as six series. And, I mean, this is after Space Command is, is safely in, in yeah. hand. But um, Rock Neil Bannon, who created Farscape and Alienation and Sequest and uh, Defiance and Cult is, is aboard for that yeah. project and, and five more guys at that level. So, but, but with Space Command, um, in a way I feel I've already succeeded. Because um, you know we're, we're, we're we've shot it. We've shot the first two hours. You can watch it. Um, you know I, we have a Kickstarter campaign now for post production, and uh, and you know people are still funding it and helping us. So it doesn't stop, and it's ongoing. And and it's funny because even when I'm actively pitching the show, every day I'm working with my visual effects team and my um, my music, you know, my composer and and my sound guys, and continuing to move forward and and. 
you know, we just premiered the first half hour at Comic-Con and we're going to show it at Worldcon in about a week and a half, two weeks. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't be more thrilled, you know, so. Now, I want to ask you, yes. what is the genesis of Far Beyond the Stars? How did that come about? Sure, sure. Far Beyond the Stars, is, it has a, a very interesting genesis. It was, uh, I, um, when I was a kid, Star Trek came on and that was like, some people have heroin, I have Star Trek. <laughs> you know, basically, it was the thing I'd been waiting for my whole life. And, and this is, uh, I, was, I loved Star Trek so much that I recorded it on Realtreel audio tape in case it never aired again okay. because they didn't have VCRs when I was a kid. And, uh, and, and my heroes weren't the actors, they were the writers. So I was noticing, because I was reading science fiction already, so I was recognizing many of the names. So Theodore Sturgeon and Harlan Ellison and George Clayton Johnson and on and on, Richard Matheson, D.C. Fontana, David Gerald. And um, so as soon as I was old enough, I started going to conventions and meeting these writers. They became friends and mentors. And uh, Ted Sturgeon was my mentor when I was a teenager. And uh, he was a phenomenal writer, not just of Amok Time and surely the two episodes of Star Trek he wrote, but in books and short stories. And, and he and I became very good friends. And, and he had been writing for those science fiction magazines in the 50s, Galaxy and the magazine of science, fantasy and science fiction and Astounding. And, and I realized that there were all these writers who were writing for a penny a word, for five cents a word, for the love of it, and that we wouldn't have Star Trek, we wouldn't have Star Wars, <clears throat> if not for those guys who were basically the founders of science fiction and created these amazing works. And I wanted to show that world. And so, <clears throat> so I became a writer, and uh, I was very successful in, film, in, in TV and film and books, and I had this idea for Deep Space Nine. And I, the, uh, one, another thing that kicked it off was Harlan Ellison, who was also a friend and mentor, and he wrote City on the Edge of Forever. Uh, he had done a little cassette tape just talking about writing for those magazines in the 50s. And one of the things he talked about was back in those days, <clears throat> they would often commission the covers first, and then he, he was in New York at the time, and he would rush across on the day that they would have the, the covers delivered, the paintings, and he would rhapsodize about whatever the cover was and convince them that he had a great idea for a story, and he'd get the assignment. And he mentioned that one time it was the worst cover imaginable, and he had to pretend like it was like the Mona Lisa. And, he, he, and it, was a, it was a painting of a girl sunbathing on, on the roof of like a New York tenement, and a giant grasshopper was looking over the lip of the building at her, and he had to say, oh, that's so incredible. I actually later got that copy of the magazine. But that was sort of the, the, the first thing that gave me this idea. And uh, so I, I, originally the, the story was somewhat different because it was, you can't, when you're a freelance writer, you can't just go in and say, well, it's all a dream or it's all a hallucination. And so I came up with a, a different um, rationale for why this was happening. And it was, it was um, and, but, but that was just the rationale. So when they, and so I pitched it to Hans, Hans Beimler who I'd worked with uh, as a story editor on Beyond Reality for two years, and uh, he and Ricky were my bosses, Richard Manning. And uh, I pitched it to Hans, and he really liked it, but it took, him, it took him a year to convince them to buy it. And by then, I was a producer on Sliders yeah. at Universal. And so I get this call in my office at Universal, and it's Hans Beimler, and he says, uh, uh, I've got great news for you. I've just sold, uh, I've convinced them to buy Far Beyond the Stars. And I said, well, that's great timing, Hans. You know, I'm kind of, I was writing two episodes of Sliders back-to-back, and so the only time I had to meet with the Star Trek um, writers team was uh, at my lunch hour, my lunch break. So I drove over the hill from Universal to Paramount, and there was a restaurant next to Paramount called Nicodell's. It's not there anymore. And, uh, and the entire writing staff was there, Ira and Hans and, you know, everyone else. You know, it was just, it was amazing. I think Ron Moore, Ron Moore was there, yes. 
And um, so over lunch, we just started talking about it. And they, they, they were all fans of the Twilight Zone companion. And they said, we love the Twilight Zone. We want this to be very much like a Twilight Zone episode. And so immediately it was like, well, and they said, well, let's have it be the prophets. The prophets give him this vision. I said, great. And we just started batting around the story. And um, originally in my version, it was Jake who was going to be the one in the 50s because he was an okay. inspiring writer. But they said, no, no, let's make, it, let's make it Cisco because that ups the stakes and he's okay. the main character. <clears throat> great. And then they said, let's have it overtly be about race and about a writer writing a white future and he's writing under a white pseudonym. And then he has to, and he gets the cover painting of, of DS9, and he has to write his truth. He has to write his truth because he goes home to Harlem, where all his black friends say, "Why are you writing a future work that we're not in?" And uh, and during the day he's hanging out with all the other white writers, mm-hmm. and um, and so so I so I wrote the outline that weekend. We all knew it was going to be a great show, a classic, mm-hmm. uh, even before we shot it. And uh, and I went, I wrote, I wrote this. Of the outline that weekend at my office at Universal, and I called Harlan Ellison for a, um, a research background, and he was very, very gracious. He told me about a, write, a black writer back then in the 50s who was writing under a white pseudonym that he knew of, not a science fiction writer, but a mainstream novelist, and we talked about more details about what it was like to write back then and what like, like New York was like back then and Harlem and so forth, and I was just really doing my research. I called some other friends who had lived in Harlem at that period just to kind of get the details right. And then I turned out the turned in the outline. It was a really I really was proud of it. I loved it. And uh, and then Han, Han, um, Hans calls and he says uh, um, we're going to be writing the script in house. And I called Ira and I said, "What's going on?" Because as a producer, I mean, I'm you know at my level, you don't get cut off at story. Yeah. And he said, "It's it's some, simply because you're on sliders and you're writing you know two scripts back to back, and I don't think you have the bandwidth to uh, to write the script because they were going to fast track it for Sweeps Week when you know and." Uh, and I, and I absolutely had the capacity to write that script. I, yeah. it, that would not have been difficult for me at all. But, but Iris said, okay, look, I'll, give you, uh, I'll make you a deal. If you quit Sliders, I'll let you write Far Beyond the Stars, the huh. script. And I actually considered it because I knew it was going to be uh, iconic. And, uh, but I was writing two episodes of Sliders back-to-back, and they were really dependent on me. If I had quit, they would have been really screwed, and I just couldn't do that. Yeah, and yeah. so, but the funny thing, and so, so, the, so the, the major difference is my outline was very, very similar to the episode that got made. And the main difference, there were two main differences. One was <clears throat> that Worf wasn't a baseball player, he was a boxer. Okay. And he had, he had a secret relationship with a white woman, and the cops find out, and they basically beat him I think I think they beat him to death or beat him to a pulp, and the um, that was sort of like the Great White Hope, you know, Jack Johnson and that kind of history, and uh, and also Worf seemed to me much more like a boxer than a baseball player, mm-hmm. and um, and then the other difference was at the end, um, Armin when 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 uh, when Benny has his breakdown, Armin uh, is so moved by this Armin's character uh, that he publishes the story, mm-hmm. so the truth gets out. Because I feel that that it can't have an effect on the world unless it gets unless that truth gets out. But um, <clears throat> but and Ar- and Armin played the uh, editor of the magazine. He was um, sort of based on H. L. Gold, who was the, who was a short Jewish guy who was the editor of, of uh, um, Galaxy magazine. And uh, but uh, but then when, and, and I knew Ira and Hans were going to do a great job because they're both very talented writers. And I knew and they were following the outline. And it and it and it, the story was nailed. It would it was we all knew it was going to be great. So I wasn't worried about the quality of it with them writing it. But um, but it was just fr- frustrating not to be able to write it when I absolutely knew I had the ability to. Right right you know, right. And uh, so but then um, and then uh, and then Ira said, well, let's make it. Um, not he was worried about um, it seeming anti-Semitic if if we had 
uh, Armin as the, as the editor of the magazine in, in uh, you know, forcing Benny to write as a white writer. So, um, so he, made it, he made it Renee's role. And so they swapped roles, essentially, because okay, yeah, yeah. Renee was going to be the firebrand writer who sort of had communist leanings and maybe was a communist in the 30s. But we swapped that out. So, so uh, Renee Aubergenois was much more like the John W. Campbell kind of editor of Astounding at the time. And, um, <clears throat> and so then, but the funny thing was at the same time I was writing an episode of Sliders called World, World Killer. And there was this little character that I was, I was writing, writing the role for Armin. And in fact, I have the character say, my favorite TV show is Beauty and the Beast, not the Disney one, the one with Ron Perlman, because Armin played Pascal in that show, and I wrote for that show, and it was like an in-joke. But, but the, they shot both scripts the same week. Okay. And so as a result of that, Armin couldn't be in my Sliders episode because he was in, in my DS9 episode. So if you ever see that, that episode of Sliders, there'll be a character making, saying that line, and it won't make any sense at all. Yes, yes. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> but so... So I went on the set of DS9, and I went on the set of Sliders and took a photo with the cast of each the same day with me in the same clothes. Two studios filming my work simultaneously. <laughs> and I went on, so I went on the set of Deep, Deep Space Nine, it was the magazine office. And, um, and I knew Armin, of course. Armin Shimmerman was a very good friend. And I told him <clears throat> when I was coming up with this that I, I was going to come up with an idea for a show where, where they, the audience could see his face mm-hmm. for the first time yes. on DS9. And, of course, he was thrilled about that. And so, but when I went, when I went on the set, um, Armin knew me, but I'd never met Avery Brooks. And so he was directing the scene, because Avery was the director of the episode, and he was kind of looking kind of like out of the side of his face, you know, he looked kind of glancing sidewise at me, wondering who I was, because I was on set watching him direct. And he said, to, and so he finished the, the scene, and he said, okay, cut, uh, everybody take, take a lunch break. And so I walked up to him, and I shook his hand, and I said, hello, Mr. Brooks, my name is Mark Zickby, I came up with this story. And he said, everybody, everybody, stop. And he said, and he put his arm around me and he said, say to them what you just said to me. <laughs> and I said, I came up with this story? And he said, he came up with this story. And everyone applauded me. And it was a great moment. It was a great moment. And, uh, and so then the episode came out and it was every bit as wonderful as I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they put a lot of money into it. I mean, the New York street scene with buses and yeah. Hasidic Jews and nuns and newsstands. And it was just phenomenal. And so I was, I was just incredibly pleased. So uh, uh, this episode's compared a lot to the inner light. Yes. You know, we yes. Have Picard's in yes. a in an odd situation. Uh, yes. Ben Francisco's in an odd situation. Yes. Why do you think these episodes are ones that resonate so much with fans? Because they're both considered, you know, top yes. episodes of yes. the series. Yes. Why are the ones where they're not even in their normal roles are the ones that people seem to really like? What do you think well, that is? Well, the thing I love about Star Trek in general is that as a writer. You know, when, when, when the original Star Trek came out, every week it was just an amazing, amazing show and stories that you've never seen before anywhere. And and so star, and because Ted Sturgeon and Harlan Ellis and all these other great writers were mentoring me, I was really raised with the notion you, that you can write something profoundly truthful, profoundly original, deep and meaningful and lasting that will affect people deeply and perhaps change their lives for the better, change the world for the better. And so for me... Um, every time I went into pitch to Star Trek, um, whether it was Next Gen or, or DS9 or whatever, there was always the, the opportunity and the responsibility to come up with something that they'd never seen before that would really, really go deeply into the truth of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, and with Far Beyond the Stars, my goal was to say, this is why writing is important. This is why writing science fiction is important. The fact that you can change the world. When Cisco says, am I the dreamer or the dream? And his father, you know, says, and as, as the preacher says, you're both. You know, it's that, that's that notion of we're, we're brought into that world and it changes us. Mm. 
and we emerge different and and more thoughtful and more kind. We hope and um, so so and but but every time I went into Star Trek, I was always thinking. Uh, to pitch, I was thinking, what haven't they done? So, for instance, on Star Trek The Next Generation, when I came up with First Contact, it was like, okay, they've done stories with the prime directive where they can deal with cultures at their level or above. They've done stories with uh, cultures that are at a lower level of technology where they can't reveal themselves, but they never did a story where uh, culture reaches the level where the prime directive turns off and the Enterprise is sent to make First Contact. And, so like, and when I pitched that, their eyes just lit up because it was like, wow, we've never seen that one. And, the, um, and with Far Beyond the Stars, again, it was like, let's show the world we came from. Let's show what it was like back before there was a Star Trek, before there was a Star Wars, before it was a multi-million dollar, you know, th- I mean, there was a time when it wasn't the top, you know, grossing movies were fantasy and science fiction and horror. There was a time when, you know, science fiction was a strange niche thing, and if you wanted to write it, you had, you had to kind of take, uh, take on a life of poverty, mm-hmm. for the most part, you know, and... Uh, and so, and, and yet these guys would go to science fiction conventions and be gods like Ted Sturgeon or Harlan, and then they'd be living lives where they basically weren't known to the public at large, weren't recognized, and certainly weren't compensated as they should have been. Mm-hmm. And so I really wanted to show that world and talk about why science fiction is important. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what I succeeded in doing. And then, and then when I came up with the Star Trek episode with George Takei, that was even further down that same road of like, let's see what we can do that's never been done on Star Trek before. Let's see what we can do where we give Sulu the great episode he deserved, George Takei. And in that one, I did it without a studio or a network. Mm-hmm. But my whole attitude was this was canon. This was exactly as if I were writing for Star Trek at Paramount. There was no difference. There was no line of demarcation. Yes. And, and now with Space Command, it's the further evolution of that where my audience finances the show mm-hmm. and finances the pilot and where I don't have to ask permission from a studio or a network. I don't have to say... I don't have to um, downshift into something less meaningful because they're, they have a different object, uh, agenda than I do. Right, right. So, um, so Far Beyond the Stars is very much in keeping with what Harlan showed me with City on the Edge of Forever or Ted showed me with Amok Time. I mean, there's no... Where did you ever see a thing about an alien spawning cycle? Right, you right. know, and You know, and it's like, you know, Spock is basically a salmon, yeah. you know, or whatever, you know, yeah, yeah. And, or an elk. And... Um, and that was Ted. Ted was very interested in, se- in issues of sexuality. And putting that in a science fiction context, you can look at things from a different angle. And that was very daring back then. There was no one had ever written anything like that for television, my God. And, uh, you know, and, and he, Ted told me a great story about that episode. He said uh, they, they showed him a screening of the cut uh, before it aired. And, he, and they had taken out the one line that was his reason for writing the entire oh. script which is where Spock says to the suitor who's won to Pring's hand, he says, You'll, you may find that having is not nearly as desirable as wanting, or whatever the specific line is. And, uh, and Ted said, that was his whole reason for writing the script. And he said, I never pull rank as a writer, but that was one time when I did. I said, you must put this back in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they did. Yeah. Which, of course, is great because it's, it's, it's... a great line. It is. And meaningful, too. Yeah. And truthful. Yeah. Because, again, most TV shows and movies that are bad, or at least less meaningful, are just carbon copies of other movies, carbon copies of other TV shows, there's no truth in them. Right. And But when you're looking to your life, Ray Bradbury was one of my mentors for over 10 years, and he said, don't look outside, look within, mm-hmm. you know, and, as a writer. And that's really important. You have to say, okay, what do I care about? What, what's meaningful to me? What is, what, what's the lesson that my life is teaching me? And, um, and so that's, that's why I'm enormously grateful that Star Trek made me who and what I am, as did Twilight Zone. Because again, Rod Serling cared deeply about the world, cared deeply about people. He was not a cynic at all. 
he was an optimist, yeah. as, as was Ray. Ray once told me with Fahrenheit 451, they were comparing it to 1984, and, and he said, not, Fahrenheit 451 is not a pessimis pessimistic novel, it's an optimistic novel, because the book burners do not win. The people saving the books and remembering the books carry their tradi tradition, they win. Yeah. And so, and he's right, because in 1984, Winston Smith is destroyed by the state. It's a very dark novel, but I, I prefer Fahrenheit 451 for that very reason. And um, so, you know, so that's, that's, you know, why I do what I do. Yeah, yeah. And, to, and I have a, an enormous, I mean, thank God for science fiction conventions. Thank God yeah. for this wonderful genre we, we live in, because... I mean, what, where else can you meet your heroes? Where else can you talk to the stars and the directors and the writers and the producers? It's phenomenal. And, and that shaped me, and that gave me this wonderful career I've had. And uh, thanks to the kindness of all these people, Ray Bradbury and Harlan and Ted Sturgeon and so forth, and uh, I carry that tradition on. And I mentor a lot of young people all, all across the country, all around the world, because I feel that responsibility to pass the torch, you know. And... Uh, so I'm, I'm, I feel very blessed. Awesome, yeah. yeah. Now, before we ask about the Twilight Zone, i got to ask you what your Please. work on Sliders here. Yes, because yes, yes. I watched Sliders from the beginning mm -hmm. for the first couple of years, yes. and then we moved to a city where we didn't get Fox. Yes. <laughs> right? So I watched it for the first three seasons. Yes. And so when I when I ended up stopping watching it, yeah. his you have to remember because it's yes. been a few years. You his brother came in, like there was a brother that right. came in, and right. he ended up becoming the main of the show uh, because... Uh, uh, Jerry O'Connell left. That's not quite accurate. Okay. Okay, I'll, I'll, give you, I'll give you the facts. Hi, I'm the writer who wrote Far Beyond the Stars. So, hello. <laughs> good to meet you. I'm good. Life is exciting. I, I, oh, no, you're perfect and wonderful. You can, you can come back. We'll talk in a little while. Okay. Um, there. Um, the, um, here's, here's what happened. Um, I saw the pilot of, of Sliders when they made it. Yeah. And I was kind of put off by it because I felt that the, the black character was a little bit broad and I was not really that enthused with it with that part of it. Now later I talked to Tracy Torme and his dad was Mel Torme and he knew a lot of guys, black guys in the music scene and for him it was a very accurate, accurate portrayal of, of, of people he had known. So given that I understood it but as a viewer I felt oh this is too broad and this character is just too much and so forth. So I was... And quick interruption for the Trek fans out there. Yeah. So Tracy Torme wrote uh, uh, the season one episode Conspiracy. Yes. Uh, which is my favorite episode of Next Generation. Yes. I love that one. Yes. yes. So. And, and he also wrote the big... Is it the Big Goodbye? Or whatever, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. which I which I loved as well, and so um, so. But Tracy wrote wrote that, and George Martin, George R. R. Martin, at the same time had a pilot called Doorways that was about people who slide between parallel Earths, and I actually preferred that pilot. And but so I didn't. I wasn't watching Sliders over those first th three seasons, but then, but the third season of Sliders had been basically like warfare. Yeah. The writers were very at each other's... Uh, there was a lot of dissension in the writer's room and Fox was saying, we want movie rip-off of the week. So if Twister came out as a movie, they'd want to do one about Tornado World. Or if Jurassic Park was coming out, they'd insist on doing one about Dinosaur World. And, and it was not living up to the potential of yeah. what it could be, which is a great science fiction show, a great science fiction premise. So it was canceled by Fox and Sci-Fi picked it up for the fourth season. Great. And I was hired as a producer on that show and the edict from the network was just fix it, make it better. Mm -hmm. So what we did was we sat down with the, um, so it was me and Chris Black and uh, David Peckinpah and, um, and, and Bill Dial. We were the writing staff. And, Pe and Peckinpah was the showrunner, so we only wrote the first episode of that season. He'd been on the writing staff the previous year. Everybody else was gone. Mm -hmm. And um, so we sat down and we sat down with our, um, 
uh, uh, actors, our leads, and we said, what do you think is working about the show? What do you not think is not working about the show? And I was also looking at what the fans were saying about the show. They didn't like the female lead. She was supposed to be military. And when I watched her in the episodes, she was like not convincing as a military person. But then I watched, but then I, then I watched movies. I went and looked at movies because I said, I wanted to find out if, what, what her strengths were as an actress. And, and I watched movies that she was in where she was wonderful. And I saw, oh, she's really good. With, with, with playing scenes of affection and she's got a great heart and she's funny she can do humor really well and, and she's physical and interesting and so there was a way to write her where she'd really be a likable character that's, that's Carrie Wurr yes Wur? yeah. yes yes. and Chris Black by the way later was a story editor on, um, on Enterprise and so um, so okay so, <clears throat> so I immediately sat down and wrote an episode of Sliders that was exactly what I wanted Sliders to be and it was, it was called um, uh, World Killer and the basic idea was they slide to a world where there's no people. And they find a duplicate of Quinn, and he's got long hair, and he built a sliding machine, but it had a different effect. It slid everyone except for him oh. to a different world. Wow. And he's been wandering around for three years, thinking that, or four years, thinking that he's the last man on Earth. And then our guys show up and say, no, 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 you just sent them somewhere. Let's go to that world and find out what you did. And they go to another Earth where, in a moment the population doubles oh, and everyone wow. has their own duplicate and the issue is we can slide half this population back but it's, it's everybody or nobody and in the interim the three years since the four years since <clears throat> some people have gotten married so you know it's like well my god what do you do with those people and, and we our guys have to decide whether or not they're going to f- turn that switch and that earth because it has a double the population is dying and so we have to send half the population back and then the duplicate of Quinn has to deal with the fact that, 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 that what he did he has to somehow make good on what he inadvertently caused, and it's about responsibility to other people, and what you, and the fact you must take action to help others and and to clean up your own mess. Mm-hmm. And it was, and everyone loved it, and the actors loved it, and uh, and we were off and running. And so then that season, we just every episode was um, really playing on on what can we do that's fresh and interesting, and exciting, and um, and so it was it was great fun. But but the one thing that we were tasked with was the Jerry O'Connell who was our <clears throat> star and also directing some of the episodes including one of mine uh, Slide Cage he directed that he did a great job um, he, his brother was going to be in 17 of the 22 episodes so we had to come up with and his brother looked a lot like him and so really nice guy and we had to come up with who that character would be and we spent months talking about it among the writing staff because we didn't want him to just be the same as Quinn like another inventor or something because then you'd have two guys filling the same kind of role and, fi- and so we were batting all sorts of things around and finally Bill Dial came up with the idea of Amish world it's like Amish world they have no technology and that's what he's, he's like on a farm and he comes with us and he doesn't know from cars doesn't know from electricity doesn't know from airplanes and so he became a great opportunity for exposition because he wouldn't know this stuff and we could explain it to him but also he had a really great heart and he's really a lovable guy and so you could write to that and so he became a very different character from Jerry's character and, um, and, and it was fun because you got to be so inventive on sliders because that, the first three seasons were shot in Canada but that season they came back to the Universal lot in LA and so I could literally walk from my office onto the soundstage where there'd be a chair with my name on it because uh, I was a producer and I could really talk with the the crew and I could talk with our actors and it, it was very there was a great um, uh, camaraderie to make the show great mm-hmm. and um, I remember one day I walked the, our sets were on I think stage three and then there was there was a sound stage next to that where um, there was they were shooting the TV show Time Cop and the, they, that got cancelled and they were just going to tear down those sets so I immediately went on to those sets 
and they were great futuristic sets. And I thought up a story that could be used could use those sets. It was called Slide Cage, and it was about an alternate world that has a methane atmosphere and a prison's been built where if you try to slide to pr Earth Prime, you get shunted there to a prison there where you can never leave. And okay. there's Chromags and there's humans, and they're just stuck there. And it's about how they have to work together to to get home. And, um, and it was great fun. And um, well, one of the first questions I asked when I came on Sliders, because I wrote the Twilight Zone Companion, and Rod shot Twilight Zone at MGM. And it was, of course, the great studio of its day. And, and Rod had access to all the props, all the costumes, all the sets, and the back lot of every uh, TV show or movie that MGM had ever made. So when I went on, so they used stuff from Forbidden Planet and Andy Hardy and Meet Me in St. Louis. And so... Um, so when I got hired on Sliders, I said, do we have access to all the costumes and sets and props from everything that Universal has? And they said, huh, no one's ever asked that question before. We'll find out. And they came back and they said, with a few exceptions, the answer is yes. Cool. So for instance, on Slide Cage, we used the sets from Time Cop. We used costumes uh, like a spacesuit from 12 Monkeys. We had enormous, you know, and, and we, in another episode, we used some of the, some of the buildings from Jurassic Park. It's like it hugely enhanced what we could do. Nice, nice. It was great fun. Great fun. Well, you have to check it out. I have all five seasons yeah. on DVD. Yeah. And it's just, you know, being in the Star Trek world, it's yes. like kind of absorbed my life here. Yes. So. Well, but I'll tell you a funny thing. I, I don't know if I told you this. Um, when I wrote Far Beyond the Stars and when I wrote Slide Cage, um, they were shooting both episodes the same week. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a role in Slide Cage for Armin where he plays this little guy who kind of lives in the shadows and hides and no one knows he's there. Mm -hmm. And um, I gave him a line where he said, my favorite TV show is Beauty and the Beast, not the Disney one, yeah. the Ron Perlman one. And, I, and, um, and it was written for Armin. And, but because he was shooting Far Beyond the Stars that week, I couldn't get him for sliders because we both worked on Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. And he played Pascal. And, um, and so, my, my, uh, so Armin couldn't be in the, the, the Sliders episode because he was shooting my Deep Space Nine episode, yeah. Far Beyond the Stars. Yeah. And so if you ever watch that Sliders episode, the actor they did cast says that line and it makes no sense. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so it's very fun. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the Twilight Zone yes. Canyon here. So this is, the, this is the big, awesome elephant thing. So, yes. Um, uh, first I've question. Never, I've never had it described as that before. <laughs> like, there's so much information. I'll use in that this as book. a blurb on the next edition of the big, big elephant. Brandon, the big elephant yes. thing. Brandon, yes. So, uh, big elephant in the room. I guess. Yes, is the thing exactly. I want to say. Um, so you've just recently published a new edition yes, of this book I here. Have. So, um, what's new in the Twilight Zone Companion? Well, you know, it's so fascinating because you know I wrote, I started that book when I was 22 years old, right out of college, because I, I knew I wanted to be a writer, producer, and TV, and there were no classes in that. There was nobody to learn it. So I thought, well, huh, I'll write a book about one of the greatest TV shows ever made that I love, and in interviewing all these people, I'll learn how to do that job. So, and by the time I was 22 or 23, I was writing for television. So The Twilight Zone Companion came out, and it's been in print ever since, and it sold half a million copies. <clears throat> but, but the funny thing was people would keep telling me stories about The Twilight Zone after the book came out. And um, so... So I then produced the Blu-rays and the DVDs, and I did 52 audio commentaries with all the people like George Clayton Johnson and Earl Hamner and the actors, Billy Moomy, all these people who worked on Twilight Zone, Richard Donner. But, but, they weren't, but a lot of the stories that were told personally to me by them and others, Doug Hayes, the great director of Eye of the Beholder and Howling Man and At the After Hours, um, they weren't in the book. And so I did a revision of the book in the 90s including when, they, when CBS brought Twilight Zone back, which was a show I actually wrote for. And, um, and then, uh, but, but in, between then and now, there have been no, no new additions, so at least 20, 25 years. And, um, and the other thing, the other reason I wanted to do it was because back when I wrote the book, if you wanted to watch Playhouse 90 or any of the things Rod wrote in the 50s or any of that stuff, 
you had to go to a university archive that had the print of that episode. You'd put a 16 millimeter print on a moviola, and you'd watch it on this little editing yeah. screen. And it was very difficult to see this stuff. But now, thanks to YouTube, everything's online. Yeah. So I wanted to have links to some of the shows Rod wrote for in the 50s. I wanted to have links to commercials he did and lectures he gave and just rarities. And, um, and I also wanted to do new interviews that I would videotape or, or record with audio uh, where you could listen to them or watch them. So I did a new interview with George Takei and a new interview with Rod's daughter, Jody. And also, I did the interviews... On, on audio tape when I was doing my interviews originally so I had Burgess Meredith and Ross Martin talking about their episodes so I wanted to ha have people be able to listen to that so the new edition has links to those things Okay, yeah. so, and, and, and even to such weird things as there was a fan who when he learned the Twilight Zone the Planet of the Apes was co-written by Serling he re-edited Planet of the Apes into a half hour black and white Twilight Zone oh, episode man. and he took audio of Serling's narration from other episodes that fit like three astronauts stranded on an alien planet oh, wow. and, and he did this and so when I saw this I said to him would you like me to write a bogus chapter of the Twilight Zone companion explaining why that episode and it was never aired as a Twilight Zone episode but was expanded to a two hour color movie like this <laughs> fake history so I wrote an entire fake chapter of the book and so you can watch that episode and read that chapter via links in the new companion and there's 500 new photos there's over 100 pages of new material yeah. it's just really fun Excellent, right on. Now, you're not afraid to give negative reviews no. of episodes. No. But has there been any episodes where your opinions changed yes. after some rewatches? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. And the funny thing was, when I wrote the book, um, my deal with Carol Serling was that she would give me access to everything of Rod's, everything I needed uh, that she had, and she would get a percentage of the book, but she would not have any editorial control. Because I knew I wanted to be able to be free to say things like, well, Sterling's a brilliant writer, but this episode was a dog. You know? Yeah, yeah. Because he, was, he wrote 92 out of the 156 episodes himself. Yeah. And so every now and then, you know, there's certain episodes that aren't as good as the great ones. But the, the average is really high, of yeah. course. So, um, so um, there was an episode called The Bewitching Pool. Mm -hmm. And uh, the Bewitching Bitch, Bitch Pool was written it's by... the last episode, isn't it? It was, no. It, no. Was, it was the final season, though. Final season, And yeah. it was written by Earl Hamner, and the basic idea was there was a uh, couple that was getting divorced, and their children are going to have to decide which parent they want to be with, and they're very unhappy, and the children dive into a swimming pool, and they come up in this backwoods paradise where this aunt, aunt T uh, takes all these children who don't want to be in their lives and she gives them cake and she gives them it's a weird weird episode and there were some problems with some of the recording and um, the actress Mary Badham who played Scout in To Kill a Mockingbird they had to loop her voice mm. <coughs> you know re-record her voice for the, some of the scenes but they didn't go back to her and record her voice they went to June Foray who played Rocket, Rocky the Flying Squirrel to imitate a child and it's very glaring that it's not her and I just found it a kind of treacly episode and I didn't like it so I wrote that in the Twilight Zone Companion. And then someone wrote me a letter saying, when I was a kid, my parents were getting divorced, and there was no one on TV that was divorced. Yeah. And when I saw that episode, I knew that I wasn't alone. And I thought, that's a totally valid reason yeah. to love that episode. So in the new edition of the Companion, I tell that exact story. I say, you know, this is an episode that I was selling short. And another episode that I was, I was selling short was The Hunt, mm. which is another Earl Hamner episode. Yeah. Now, the funny thing is, when I interviewed Earl about that episode, it's about Hyder Simpson, this backwoods guy with his dog who goes hunting and he drowns and he's in the afterlife and the devil tries to trick him into going to hell thinking it's heaven, but the dog saves him. Mm -hmm. and, and it has the great line, um, not even the devil can fool a dog. Yes. You know, and it's a great episode. And, and, and I was not that pleased with, with Hyder Simpson's, the actor's performance. 
But again, people love that episode. And when I revisited, I said, okay, I, I kind of I, I can get get my head around this episode and, and see its value. But the funny thing was, Earl Hamner did not tell me that he actually wrote that script for the Kate Smith Hour as a skit in uh, the 50s. And there's a live TV version mm-hmm. where Hyder Simpson is played by John Carradine, who mm-hmm. later was in The Howling Man on Twilight Zone, and The Angel is played by James Dean. Yep. And so you can actually see a clip of that, and I think I'm going to post that entire episode where you can watch that entire episode. Mm-hmm. So, so there's a lot of fun things in the new edition, and I'm, I'm very proud of it. Excellent. Right on. So what, what would you say is your favorite episode of The Twilight Zone? Do you have one? Yes, I do. Oh. My favorite, I think, is Walking Distance, which is, is an episode that Rod wrote in which Gig Young goes back to his childhood. He encounters his, his only himself as a boy. He wants to go back and live there because he's so burnt out about his present-day life. And his father says, you can't, you can't stay here. You have to go back and, and find happiness in your, in your life, mm-hmm. where, whatever it is. And Rod is the most autobiographical of Rod's scripts. When Rod was in the Army, his father died very suddenly of a heart attack. And Rod was not allowed to go back to the funeral, so he never got to say goodbye to his father. And so this is Rod's way in his writing of going back and talking to his dad again as an adult. Mm -hmm. And it's a beautiful episode. Bernard Herrmann wrote an amazing score. He also did Psycho and Citizen Kane and all these great movies. And um, so the writing is beautiful. The acting is wonderful. Frank Overton, who's in the episode uh, Shore Leave in Star Trek, is, plays the, the father. Gig Young's wonderful. It's just a great episode, and I love it. It was shot on the back lot of MGM. It has this carousel. It's beautifully lit, beautifully directed. I love that episode. But there's so many others. I mean, Eye of the Beholder with the woman's head wrapped in bandages and Nightmare 20,000 Feet with the gremlin on the wing. Yeah, yeah. You, could, you could name 20 or 30 or 40. They're Classics. just spectacular, yeah. Classic episodes. One of the things that I think is really great about the, uh, about the Twilight Zone. Now, I, I host a podcast on the Trek FM network called Melodic Treks, and yes. it's all about the music of yes. Star Trek. Yes. And Tom Elliott has come on, and we talked about two episodes that Goldsmith scored, yes. uh, Dust and the Invaders. We yes. talked about the music for that in the stuff. episodes. Great stuff. But the music in this era is something that's really stand out. It's what I think yeah. makes Star Trek special. It's what I think makes the Twilight Zone special. Yes. And one of the episodes, my personal favorite episode of Twilight yeah. Zone, uh-huh. a strong influence in why I love it so much mm-hmm. is because of the music. Which one? And that's... Um, the Midnight Sun. Yes. That's a really interesting episode. Lois Nettleton and, and Earth is heading toward the sun and everyone's burning up and they really convey the heat yeah. and the oppression of that so well. Yes, yes. It's, it's, a, it's a really fun episode. Yeah, that's my I, that's my favorite episode. Like, it's grown on me for yeah. years. Yeah. Um, I used to think uh, Monsters on, are doing Maple Street yes. Buzz, but after a rewatch here and following along with yes. Tom, yes. the one with the the party and the shelter I yes. think it's called the shelter yes, when the is. basement it is. Yeah. I think it's better yeah. yeah yeah you know more powerful I watched that with my daughter and you know I was telling you earlier yeah. my daughter was we started watching when she was 6 and she's mm-hmm. 8 now so we've been slowly watching the yeah. way through and it's it's a great show I think yes. it is probably the best show to sit down with a young person yes. and talk about social issues yes. well see this is what makes twilight zone so great and it's it's ironic because rod never wanted to be a science fiction writer. That wasn't his ambition. He wanted to be the Arthur Miller of television. Yeah. But, but when he was writing for Playhouse 90, he was the most successful, highest-paid writer in television. He was writing you know, Requiem for Heavyweight and winning Emmys and all these great things. But anytime he wanted to write about race or social issues or politics, he was totally censored. In fact, he, did a, he wrote a, a piece about the Congress, and he couldn't even mention Democrats or Republicans. He couldn't mention any, any issue of the day. And he said to the press, if I had set this in the 21st century, and populated the Congress with robots, I could have gotten my point across better. Yeah. And that was the seed that led to him creating Twilight Zone. And he had to write four Twilight Zone pilots before one was accepted and filmed. That was how, and they were totally different stories. And he, and that it took that amount of determination to get that show on the air. And 
And but the funny thing is, had he just stayed a mainstream uh, dramatist in TV, he wouldn't. People wouldn't know who he was. He wouldn't be remembered because, as good as as Requiem for a Heavyweight is, you know, it's like of its era. But Twilight Zone, because he had to write more generally in science fiction, less specifically, it's timeless. And so he's writing about nuclear Armageddon, but he's also writing about how people can tear each other apart through fear, through, through manipulation. And um, so Monsters are drawn Maple Street, The Shelter, they're every bit as timely and pertinent yeah. because we're love and death and fear and hope. These are as current now as they were then. And so it's brilliant. I mean, Kick the Can, you look at Kick the Can, George Clayton Johnson wrote that. And he was in his 20s, early 30s when he wrote it. It's about old people and how you have to be young again in your heart and then it gives you a reason for living it's it's so meaningful that episode and George was able to get in, into the, the headset of what it would be like to be that person and um, and so that and or nothing in the dark these are incredibly meaningful truthful yeah. stories and and so I think because Serling set the tone and it's very funny because he said to Charles Beaumont when he brought him aboard he said look I know you've been writing TV and and they've been you know messing with with your intent and changing the scripts I will film what you write. So go, you know, swing for the fences. Mm -hmm. And Beaumont didn't believe him. He said, well, what the hell, I'll give it a try. And he was amazed that Rod filmed his first draft. Yeah. Filmed exactly what he'd written. And that was true of Matheson. That was true of George Clayton Johnson and Earl Hamner. He respected the writers. And it's amazing. Now that we have, the, I produced the Blu-ray set, and they put back on Rod's coming attraction spots. And they were where they would film Rod talking about next week's episode. Yeah. And the amazing thing is, he never says, next week we have an episode I wrote and I, it's a corker. But anytime it's another writer, he'll say, we have a script next week, by, an episode next week by Richard Matheson. It's a great script. Or we have a wonderful script by George Clayton Johnson. Yes. And, and George Clayton Johnson told me when he went on the set of Nothing in the Dark, he was feeling a little kind of uncomfortable because it was, it was, you know, it was the crew was there and they were filming the episode. And he felt almost like a, an interloper. And then Rod came on with some guests and he, uh, he walked up to George and he said, this is George Clayton Johnson who wrote this wonderful episode that we're shooting now. And, and George just felt on top of the world. And, and so Rod had that great respect for writers, that great... Um, when, he won, when he won his Emmy, his, his Emmy, he held it up and, he, and he, he said he addressed Richard Matheson and Charles Bowman and George Clayton Johnson by name. And he said, come over to my house and we'll carve this up like a turkey. Yes. And so what a, what a great guy. Yeah. What an amazing, brilliant man. Yeah. Now, uh, those those previously are next time on Twilight Zone. Yes. Things. Yes. No, so I've got the DVD sets mm -hmm. that I have that first came yeah. out, and some of them were actually missing the footage. Has that been found? Yeah. There's well, some yes, that were just yes, audio. They found all of them. Oh wow! They found awesome. all of them. So the Blu-ray, they went back to the negatives, so they they struck new prints that, and they and those are incredible. They're gorgeous, and they also found the coming attraction spots. They found all sorts of rarities yes. they hadn't found before, and I did 52 commentaries on the Blu-ray set with, you know, um, not just not just people who work on the show, like George Clayton Johnson and Earl Hamner and Bill Mooney and so forth, but I also have people who were who were influenced by the show and became huge influences in books and TV and movies. So so I sat down with Matt Weiner, who created Mad Men, and we watched two of his favorite episodes and talked about them. I sat down with Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know Neil's Jewish, and Rod was Jewish, and I'm Jewish, so we watched Death's Head Revisited, which is the, story, the one set in, the, in, yeah. in, the, in Dachau, the concentration yeah. camp. And so that was terrific. And That one know, was an interesting one to try yes. and explain to my daughter. Yes, like, yes. To try, like, to try and say that these camps, yes. like, oh my goodness. Yes, you know? and, yet, and yet, you know, it's funny because you couldn't do better to, to tell people what the, what the Holocaust was than show someone that episode yeah. or to show them what war is and show them Purple Testament because Rod was in the, in the Philippines during World War II and that is I think probably the best thing about war probably ever written on television because it's so truthful and you just feel 
how what that life is like. It's terrific, and uh, so yeah, and um, you know, so it's great. To, it's great that I can now have audio and video. On, in the Twilight Zone companion I can you know because when I sat down with George Takei because he was in The Encounter which was an episode that was not in syndication for many years and now it's back available on home video and in syndication and I talked to him about that episode and I also talked about him about how Rod and George Takei both saw saw their, their role as one of social activism yeah. of a bully pulpit without preaching but just being you know standing for what you stand for I remember when I was going through Rod's um, scrapbook I turned a page and there was a photo of Rod with Martin Luther King. It's like, wow, what, 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 what that conversation must have been. Mm-hmm. You know, how wonderful that must have been. And uh, so it's, it's just really great to be able to write about something so meaningful. And it, it's Star Trek and Outer Limits and Twilight Zone. The original versions of those three shows are the reason I'm a writer. Awesome. And, and many of the writers wrote for those shows. You know, like you'll see, you know, Harlan Ellison's name on Star Trek and on Outer Limits or Richard Matheson on, on all three of those shows, etc. George Clayton Johnson wrote the first episode of Star Trek and Twilight Zone. And so to get to know these people in person and, and have them guide me and mentor me and advise me is just... It was just such a gift. It's amazing, man. It's a blessing. It's amazing. Phenomenal. And now, and, and now with Space Command, the fact... I mean, I've always felt this enormous kinship with my audience because I'm the same. And so to be able to reach out to my audience via Kickstarter and, and selling investment shares on Space Command and have them step up. I mean, I raised a million dollars and we have a new Kickstarter campaign for Post and people can buy uh, shares in Space Command investment shares for 7500 bucks, and then they get part of my producer's royalties of, on the first four episodes. And, you know, it's like, to, to, it's funny because many of the people who sent me money I never met. 4,000 people around the world gave me the money to make Space Command with Doug Jones and Bob Picardo and all these great stars. And, um, and, I, and many of them sent me money. One guy sent me $250,000, and I talked to him on the phone three times. I hadn't met him. And, so fi- and we've had a panel at Comic-Con every single year. And so I finally said to my investors, if you come to Comic-Con, we'll get you in, and you can go to the panel, and then I'll take you to dinner. And I, and we, I took a bunch of them to dinner, and I went around the table, and had them all say what... Why, 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 what they did for a living and one was a truck driver and one was a software designer and one was a martial arts instructor all people from every walk of life mm-hmm. and I said well tell me why you invest in Space Command and they all said the same thing they said we believe in this and we believe in you it's like wow awesome. and, it was, and so none of it was like well I want to make a million dollars I want to buy a Rolls Royce no none of that yeah. they believed in the vision of it and the heart of it and so um, I'm just very grateful that I've had this amazing career and that I'm, I get to do every day I wake up my wife and I write and direct and produce together, and uh, and you know I get to do everything I want. No one, no one, I can greenlight myself, and that's the book that's coming out next year, Greenlighting Yourself, so that I can share what I've learned of how to do this. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, so I'm, I think it's been, I'm, I'm, you know, it's, uh, you know, when there's that Twilight Zone episode, it's a good life, you know, and I, yeah. I can say that about every day of my life. So <laughs> yes, excellent. You're just not sending anybody to the cornfields. Not yet, <laughs> not yet. Figuratively, maybe, but not, not, not literally. So, Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele. Yes. We've got new Twilight Zone coming. Yes, what do you think do. of this? I think it's... I'm very heartened. I think... I thought Get Out was terrific. Yeah. I thought it could have been a Twilight Zone episode, definitely. And, um, I mean, to combine Guess Who's Coming to Dinner with Stepford Wives was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was a horror movie, but it was saying something. Yeah. It's exactly like when, when in Twilight Zone, when there's, when there's a horror episode, it's saying something. Whether that's to serve man or nightmare 20,000 feet, it's commenting on something. And... Um, so, I, so when they said Jordan Peele had been, had been given the reins of the new Twilight Zone, I thought, okay, I think he's going to do a great job. And I'm going to sit down and interview him uh, shortly, and there'll be a link where you can listen and watch that episode, that interview on uh, via the, the new Twilight Zone companion. And also I'm going to tell him about when I, uh, 
when I wrote for Twilight Zone, when they brought it back, I, I came up with a script called Knife Through the Veil. And the basic idea was um, a woman's husband and child are killed in a home invasion, and in the police pursuit, the killer uh, loses control of the car and, is, and hits a brick wall. He's killed. And she just doesn't feel that she got justice. You know, she feels that, that by dying, he escaped justice in a strange way. And she starts seeing him. Where she, wherever she goes, she starts seeing this killer. And, and she pursues him into the afterlife to get revenge. Wow. And it's about ultimately coming to mercy and forgiveness. And it's, it was a very meaningful script. And Doug Hayes, who directed Eye of the Beholder and Howling Man and The After Hours, he was my dear friend. And, uh, and he was going to direct that episode. And, um, and a week before we were going into prep, the CBS censored, censors pulled the plug. And I was just, they thought it was too violent. Now it would be nothing. Yeah. Nothing. And um, so when I talk, sit down with Jordan Peele, I'm going to tell him about that script. Okay. I was, Katie, Katie Sackhoff, when Battlestar Galactica was on, she read that script and wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. And we just never pulled the elements together to do it. But uh, she would have been great. But, um, but we'll see what happens, you know? Yeah. We'll see what happens. Do you think that television... Like, I know we have shows right now, like, um, we've got uh, the HBO show True Detective. Yes. We have American Horror Story. Yeah. We're anthology shows. Yes. And, you know, this is what I wanted Discovery to be. I wanted Discovery to be an anthology series, yes. right? Yes. Does anthology still have a place on television? And do you think that they would go with an episode-by-episode episode anthology? Or do you think maybe Jordan might be considering something of, like, a season-long arc anthology? I think so. I think... My guess would be that he's going to do an anthology like Twilight Zone was, yeah. because uh, it's, it, first of all, it'd be very hard to sustain that kind of a story over a season. Okay. You know, he might be able to do it, but I think you could tell a lot more stories and have a lot more variety and and, and um, a lot more wonderful actors doing it episode by episode. Because who wouldn't want to be in a Twilight Zone episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's interesting that the term anthology back then it, it meant every episode is a different story. Yeah. So Twilight Zone and Outer Limits were anthologies. Now when they use that term, it's, um, it means the entire season right. is one story and the next season has a different cast and a different, you know, different storyline, but the same basic theme or, or tone or area, genre. But... Um, because Black Mirror is very successful, yes, obviously, yes. right? And, and that's very dark. Always considered, yes, uh, compared to Twilight Zone. I, I think right? it really is the logical um, uh, descendant of Twilight Zone. You know, because it's not trying to be a knockoff; it's really trying to comment on our world. But I find it so dark; I can't watch it in very, very. I can't watch very many of them at once. Yeah, yeah. Because it's so dark. Though San Junipero uh, oh. was a great episode, and that yeah. was about love, and it was a gay. Uh, love story between two women and it was terrific I loved that episode and that actress is spectacular yes. I mean, I've seen her in, in The Martian and, and in Blade Runner 2049 and now she's going to be in the new Terminator movie with Linda Hamilton she's spectacular mm -hmm. and so um, so we'll, we'll see yeah but um, but you know we'll sit down, I'll sit down with Jordan Peele and we'll see where that leads you know it's funny because many people um, I end up meeting via the shows I've written for, the books I've written, end up becoming friends and then collaborators. Like with Doug Jones, you know, when I was, you know, I did the Star Trek episode with George Takei, World Enough in Time, uh, which was nominated for the Hugo and Nebula, and it's, I think I'm probably proudest of that of anything I've done. Okay. And, um, and if anyone wants to watch that episode in its entirety, I have a YouTube channel called Mr. Sci-Fi, S-C-I hyphen F-I, where I comment every week about science fiction movies and TV shows and books, and you can watch that episode in its entirety on, uh, on, on Mr. Sci-Fi. And George, George is phenomenal in it. And Christina Moses, who plays his daughter, uh, she had never done TV before, and I discovered her, and she's great. And she now stars in A Middle, Million Little Things on ABC, which is a show that's coming out. And uh, she was on the originals, and she starred in Containment recently. So, um, but but the, fun, the, the thing of that is that you can, you know, with 
with that, I, I did that, ep- that episode without a studio or a network. It was nominated for the Hugo and Nebula, first time an independent production was ever nominated for those awards. And uh, I was up against Pan's Labyrinth and Doctor Who and Battlestar Galactica. And so because I was uh, opposite Pan's Labyrinth for the award, uh, Guillermo del Toro's publisher called me and said, you want to write a book with Guillermo del Toro? And I said, sure. And so Guillermo and I became friends, and we wrote this book called Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet, Cabinet of Curiosities. And, um, and I won the Saturn Award, and Doug Jones was there, and I met him. And I took him out to lunch, and uh, I said, I'm going to write a role for you. And I wrote this lead role in Space Command for him, and he was spectacular. So he's now in Space Command, and he nice. plays a synthetic, a replicant. Uh, and, um, you know, and, he's, and that's going to be ongoing, even though he's now in Discovery. And, you know, I've, I've, I had lunch a few weeks ago with Doug and told him where his character goes. Yeah. Now, I got one last question Please. for you from, yeah. uh, from Tom. Yes. He said, the last time he was speaking with you, there was a potential new show called After Twilight based on some yes. unused Serling yes. recordings. Yes. Is there any movement on that? Any plans? It's an interesting question. Um, I, my idea was um, that Rod, Rod after, after um, he wrote Patterns, which was his first Emmy, uh, in, in 1956 and from then prior to that he'd always worked on a typewriter but after that he dictated into a dictaphone and then later years into a cassette recorder and he would dictate everything his scripts his letters everything and in his speaking voice he spoke he sounded exactly like Rod Serling on Twilight Zone he had a very distinctive way of speaking and very ornate and very articulate and so it was thought that all these dicta belts that was the recording medium uh, were lost and then 200 of them showed up in a, um, several university archives. And it was Rod dictating everything. And, uh, and so my idea was to take, and many of them have never been transcribed, never been converted to where you can listen to them. And my idea was to take that material and take lines and things he said, maybe in letters, maybe in you know, uh, conversation, maybe in, in scripts he was writing or, or speeches he was preparing, and, um, and take that material and utilize it as... Um, narration. So Rod could actually narrate these shows that would be very much in the spirit of Twilight Zone. And it, was, and it would be called Rod Serling's After Twilight because we could take material that Rod had written that was never made. He did a great script called Stops Along the Way that has never gotten made. And um, make some of Rod's material, but also go to the new writers and do scripts. And we could take Knife Through the Veil, which uh, the thing I wrote for Twilight Zone that never gets shot. And we could basically have a new show that wouldn't be Twilight Zone, but that would be original material with Rod narrating it. And, um, and I, I, I talked to Carol Serling about that, and, um, and it just, it was just we never got around to, to making it. And that, but that doesn't mean we couldn't, because the thing that I wanted, because the, what, what that arose from was both the frustration that Knife Through the Veil never got made, but also Rod wrote a terrific pilot for Twilight Zone called The Happy Place. And um, because his first pilot for Twilight Zone was called The Time Element, CBS shelved it, but then uh, it was made as, a, as an episode of Desilu Playhouse. You can now see it on the Twilight Zone Blu-ray. Um, but The Happy Place, he sat, that, that didn't sell the show, so then he sat down and he wrote The Happy Place. It was an hour-long show, and it was about a future society where it's a totalitarian government, and when you turn 60, you retire, and you're, you go to this beautiful um, retirement community called The Happy Place where they exterminate you. <laughs> And it's really dark, and it's great. And when he turned that into CBS, they said, are you out of your fucking mind? <laughs> they basically said, we're not going to make this. And so then he sat down and wrote a third pilot of Twilight Zone called um, I Shot an Arrow into the Air, which was a totally different storyline from the, the Twilight Zone episode, episode of that oh, title. Yeah, yeah. But he then cannibalized it and made it into an episode called The Gift and put it in a Mexican uh, village. But in the original, it was not Mexican village. It was an American town with an alien landing and being misunderstood and ultimately being killed. But 
And they rejected that one. So finally he was getting tired and said, said, well, enough writing hours, I'll write a half-hour script. And he wrote a script that could take place in objective reality. It was basically a guy is hallucinating that he's in a town with no people, and he keeps saying, where is everybody? And then he wakes up, and he's in an isolation booth, and he's an astronaut training for space. Mm-hmm. And that, that really actually has no fantasy element. That could take place in reality. And because the buyers were guys who were not science fiction fans, that one was sort of earthbound enough to sell the show. Yeah. But, so the ha- but the happy place was a script that never got made. So I met with the Discovery Channel, and I said, look, why don't we make a documentary about Twilight Zone that would be a wraparound and have the happy place and make film the happy place. I'd produce it. And they said, great, let's do it. And we went to CBS, and they wouldn't give us the rights to, to shoot the show, that's shoot the episode. It was really a shame. So that's where I got the idea for After Twilight, where CBS would not own the rights. Mm-hmm. And that would, it's just like with Space Command, where it's like I did the one, the one Sulu episode, the Star Trek episode for Star Trek New Voyages, that I knew inevitably Paramount was going to shut down the fan films. And, and, and obviously CBS is very proprietary about what they own, which I understand. But so Space Command is doing a space-going show that I own. No one can shut me down. And After Twilight would be me collaborating with the Sterling family to do a show that, where no one can shut us down. Mm-hmm. And that's one that also the fans could finance yeah, if they yeah. cared to. Okay. So we'll see what the future brings. Okay, good, good. Yeah, yeah. That's a, Mark, thank you so much. You've been so generous with your time. You I bet. really appreciate it. It's Happy been an honor to speak with you. Wonderful, wonderful stories. Thanks. So Well, you're very welcome. Excellent. Thank you so much. Where can people find yeah. you online? They can find me at Mr. Sci-Fi on YouTube. They can sign up for my Facebook page and Twitter, and they can go on Kickstarter and pledge to Space Command, and that'll get it all done all the sooner. What's your Twitter handle? My Twitter handle is at Mark Zickery. At Mark Zickery. Yep. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Now that's what you call an interview. I think Mark Zickery thinks and speaks so fast, you probably get about three times as much in a Mark Zickery interview as you do with anyone else. And Brandon, you know, brought some great questions to him. So, uh, you know, it really was a pleasure to sit back and listen to that. And I hope you enjoyed it too. So, The New Twilight Zone Companion, I do have it. It's a, it's a large volume, much bigger than the previous one. You know, I can't give a comprehensive review on it because I tend to just dip into it and look at each episode as I'm kind of preparing for the podcast. But you can tell that it's definitely a bigger more comprehensive tome and that you know there are differences that I can see in it like that George Takei interview and so on but just the spacing of it you know it's a it's a much clearer nicer reading experience so over time I will probably dig into it more on a more cover to cover basis but I tend to just dip into it where I need to at the moment so you know I look forward to checking that out in the future but my first impressions is it is as definitive and essential as the previous editions have been. So again, I'd like to really thank Brandon for gifting this interview to us. And if you want to check out more of his work, if you're a Star Trek fan, then go over to trek.fm. And that's where Brandon hosts his shows, Melodic Treks, which is about the music of Star Trek, and also Warp 5, which is about the show Star Trek Enterprise. And they're just two of several shows on the Trek FM network. If you're a Star Trek fan, then there's probably more shows than you can listen to there. But Brandon's stuff is definitely worth checking out. Now, if you're an Alfred Hitchcock fan, he does a show called Good Evening, and that's on something called 
the Fandom Podcast Network. I'm not entirely sure how that works. I just tend to go through my podcatcher and just look up Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast, and find it that way. And you can get a feed with just that show on it. So do that if you're a fan of Alfred Hitchcock and they're going through his movies chronologically and and that's also a lot of fun. I've actually been a guest on that show myself. So I will leave you there. We've had two Twilight Zone podcasts in the same week thanks to the kindness of Brandon and the kindness of Mark Zickery giving his time to Brandon. So I hope you've enjoyed it. So why don't we go over to Rod Sailing to find out what we're talking about on the next episode. And now, Mr. Serling. For all of us, even the most young at heart, I suppose there's a little kernel of want having to do with reliving childhood. That grand and glorious moment in time when the biggest guy around is the patrol boy. Next week on The Twilight Zone, this moment is recaptured in George Clayton Johnson's exceptionally sensitive story called Kick the Can. It co-stars Mr. Ernest Truex and Mr. Russell Collins.